welcome to Pediatric Grand Rounds or January 15th, 2020. It is also our uh, ongoing uh, Chad uh, Behavioral Health Mini Fellowship Series. So we, we welcome in colleagues on the little screen in the back, on the big screen, uh, across our medical homes in the, in the Chad and DH systems. We have um, Grand Rounds coming up next week with Dr. Bonnie Lau from Hematology Oncology. And then the end of the month is was promoted last week. We have the annual bioethics uh, visiting speaker and professorship on the 29th. So halfway through January already, and we have two speakers this morning who are going to talk about a model that has been um, implemented here in Lebanon and I think in Manchester as well. But we have, uh, some of you remember, at the end of last month, we celebrated the receipt of a generous donation, a gift that will allow us to um, bring this model to our other uh, general pediatric primary care medical homes across our system over time. It won't happen immediately, unfortunately, but this is, for those who are watching, this is a model that's coming to you. And we also actually have recently had opportunities to even um, potentially bring uh, behavioral health specialist psychologists to work in the specialty arena for children with chronic conditions, which hopefully will be a successful recruit. So the integration of behavioral and into overall health is important, and we see opportunities to actually bring that expertise collaboratively into our medical clinics, for lack of a better word. So I get to introduce uh, Drs. Balaban and Shea, Dr. Julie Balaban, who is the leader of this mini fellowship series, uh, is assistant professor of psychiatry and pediatrics here at uh, Dartmouth-Hitchcock, a, a graduate of Harvard University undergrad and SUNY Downstate Medical Center. She received her postdoctoral training at Kings County Hospital in Brooklyn and a residency at New York Hospital Cornell Medical Center, also in New York, and fellowship in child and adolescent psychiatry also at the Payne Whitney Clinic in New York, New York, New York City. She had a long career in Massachusetts and a very successful practice in Bangor, Maine, before um, coming here to Dartmouth in 2014, which was our uh, great uh, achievement that we got her out of Maine, and she has been here leading our child and adolescent psychiatry services ever since. Dr. Shea is uh, also assistant professor of pediatric psychiatry and of the Dartmouth Institute, uh, a graduate of Wellesley College, she has taken great advantage of the educational opportunities here in um, here in the Upper Valley as a uh, graduate of Dartmouth Medical School, now Geisel, uh, residency here in psychiatry, residency here in preventative medicine as well, board, board certified in preventative medicine, and fellowship in child and adolescent psychiatry, and they jointly lead these efforts. So I don't know who's going to go first, but we welcome the team to the podium. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, Julie and I are really excited to be here to be able to talk about um, what collaborative care is, um, why it's an important model to be thinking about in uh, primary uh, pediatrics, and um, what it exactly is and how it's been rolled out in Lebanon, and what are some of the processes that are happening uh, down in Manchester. Um, we do not have any conflicts of interest close. Um, and this just kind of goes over the um, our, our talk today. So we're just going to do a little introduction, um, talk about integrated care, what it is, and again, talk about uh, Lebanon and Manchester, and then hopefully we have plenty of opportunity for questions and uh, discussion. So I think all of us in this room probably know that the there's significant mental health concerns in our kids and adolescents. There was a national um, representative sample called the National Survey of Children's Health, Health that looked at, um, actually asked parents of children if uh, their child had been diagnosed with a mental health condition such as depression, anxiety, or behavioral disturbance. Um, and you can see the, the numbers of, and prevalence here. Um, the important thing to kind of just note is it was asking parents um, if they had gotten a diagnosis. And of course, we also know that children are unfortunately often undiagnosed with mental health concerns. So we think that probably the overall prevalence of these conditions in the kids that we treat is probably much higher. Um, another uh, kind of key point of this uh, uh, study was they looked at uh, asking the parents if they if their child had received any treatment within the last 12 months. And as you can see here, that the that kids are often go untreated, unfortunately, and, and don't get the care that they need for their mental health. Conditions. 
And again, these numbers are for the kids who have gotten a diagnosis. So there's even probably more children who are not getting the treatment. So why is that? I think we can all think about the reasons that may inhibit kids from getting their care. It ranges anything from stigma to the shortage of mental health providers available to actually give the care that kids need. Um, Um, so when we actually then say, well, how does that look across the nation? We see that 43 states um, in the United States actually don't have, um, they have a severe shortage actually of child psychiatrists. You can see up in the kind of more New England area that maybe there's a higher rate of psychiatrists with them only having a high shortage. No state has a sufficient supply of child psychiatrists. Um, and in New Hampshire, we have um, 17 child psychiatrists per 100,000 kids, which is you know, 30 less than what we actually need. Um, so if we look a little bit more granularly at, uh, in, in New Hampshire, I'm curious who here actually provides primary care services to kids in, like, say, Grafton County. And if you don't know where we are right now, we're in Grafton County. So I think the majority of folks probably are providing uh, primary care services here in um, area. If we then actually say, okay, well, according to these models, we actually here in Grafton County, this green line, green section, should have enough child psychiatrists. I would probably argue, and maybe other people would feel differently, but I. Feel like that's probably not an adequate number that we have here. Um, so you can see that there's some limitation just even to this data and that there's probably even more need. Um, this does not, of course, this looks at child psychiatrists. We don't have similar data for child therapists or child psychologists, um, but I think that the, the, there's a deficit in, in needs. So, so what do we do about that? Well, there's increasing evidence and in studies that show that if we take primary care, and build in behavioral health care within the primary care setting and get what we call integrated behavioral health, that that can be quite a helpful way of identifying, improving identification of kids with mental health conditions, improving their clinical outcomes, and of course, addressing the shortage that we have that's impairing kids getting We'll talk uh, just uh, briefly about what integrated care can look like, and then we'll move on to what it looks like here at so when we think about integrated care, there can be multiple kind of levels of integration. So the kind of at the very bottom of that is a referral-based model. This is where you, a primary care provider, is identifying that there's a mental health condition, and then they're referring out. Um, and so there's some coordination of care between the primary care setting and the mental health setting, but it's really based on a referral model, and there's different systems and really limited collaboration. Um, if we move into a slightly more integrated uh, model, we have something that we call co-located. So what this means is primary care and mental health services are within the same facility. But it's still different systems, different cultures, um, and, but, but inherently by being in the same facility, that leads to improved uh, collaboration and uh, communication. So the co-located model, if you think about it in this building, you can, if a primary care is in 6L and they make a referral over to us at 5D, that that is sort of a co-located model. Um, if we move further into the integration, and this is really where we're headed um, at DH, is that we want something that's fully um, a, a practice change where that the prim primary care providers, the mental health providers are on the same team, um, that there's the same treatment plan and everybody is working towards addressing that treatment plan for that particular, it's all about team-based. <coughs> um, 
Now, interestingly, within the realm of integrated care, there's actually several different models that have been developed over time. One of the most well-studied is what's called collaborative care. And this gets challenging because we often will uh, interchange the words integration, integrated or collaborative care. Um, but collaborative care is a specific model that was developed um, at the University of Washington by the AIM Center. And that um, has been shown to improve care for anxiety, depression, and comorbid medical conditions. Most, most of the studies have been done in adults, although there's increasing evidence for the utility of collaborative care in the pediatric uh, practice. So what, what is collaborative care? It's, um, there's four principles of what the model looks like. The first uh, kind of key component is that it's a team-based care, as we've already talked about, with the patient being at the center. All these folks are really working hard to address the mental health uh, needs of but it's also population-based. So yes, we're uh, taking care of a particular patient, but the key is, is that we're really looking at the population as a, as a whole and trying to ensure that, that the whole population's mental health needs are getting addressed. And what this means is that uh, patients are being systematically screened for mental health conditions. Um, so like here at Dartmouth, one of the cool things is of course, is that we've got the Dart screen. So Dartmouth is, has always, I think, probably been a little bit ahead of the game in that regard of um, studying the population and the adolescent sense for mental health um, Also looking at, uh, from the population standpoint, of keeping track of patients through a patient registry so that we're not losing patients, that we've got a good sense of where they're going and what care they're getting. Um, collaborative care is also really focused, of course, on giving, making sure that uh, folks are getting evidence-based care, both therapy and medication. Needed. And then the uh, kind of last principle is that there's components of measurement so that patients are routinely screened or routinely followed for their mental health condition um, and ensuring that we're getting them better. So what does this kind of look like? Um, so let's say that we have uh, somebody who comes in. Uh, all, all people are screened, right, because that's a population level um, intervention. So of the 100 people that are screened, you know, we identify a few who have a elevated pH 29, which is a depression screening measure. And so let's say we identified one particular patient who had a pH 29 of 20, which is a, a moderate uh, level of depression. They get the collaborative care intervention, which may include medication management from their PCP, as well as behavioral interventions, uh, some short-term therapy or motivational interviewing from the behavioral health clinician. They're then um, followed using patient-reported outcomes. In this case, it'd be, again, a PHQ-9 um, sequentially so that we're seeing, are their symptoms getting better every two weeks? And the key piece is, again, that treatment to target. So we're following those people until their depression is better, ideally under five. And if they're not getting better, that's an opportunity for the team to come back together and say, hey, what is our treatment uh, plan here? And what do we do to be, what do we need to do to modify it so that we're actually getting better? Um, what does it look like kind of as a, a system model? Here we have, again, kind of the traditional primary care uh, um, components of the PCP, the patient, and the outside uh, clinical res uh, resources. But with collaborative care, we've actually, put in two new roles. So we have a behavioral care manager who's typically a social worker, although can also be a nurse, um, as well as a consulting psychiatrist. And the bulk of the work actually happens between the PCP, the patient, and the behavioral care manager. As you can see, they're kind of that center triangle. Um, and then there's the consulting psychiatrist who provides supervision and provides additional support back up to the PCP. who have mild symptoms, right? When then we then get up to kind of the top of the pyramid, we have hopefully 
fewer patients, but who have more severe symptoms. That's what our, our population model should look like. And in collaborative care, what the kind of goal is, is that for those lower level uh, symptomatology patients, that really the PCP is providing that first line treatment. When we then get up into sort of this more you know, high, mild to, to moderate level symptomatology, that's really where the collaborative care model comes into play. Um, so this is where the PCP and the behavioral health clinician really work together. So that interventions may include some curbside consultation. Um, it can be some brief psychotherapy interventions, or it could be sort of that more comprehensive full treatment to target, as I had talked about earlier. What collaborative care is not, is it's, it's not for the top level uh, patients. It's, it's not those individuals who need long-term, ongoing, intensive care. Because again, this model is designed to be population, to serve the population. For those individuals at the top of the pyramid, they're really needing a full referral to specialty mental care, specialty mental health services, because that's not something that's appropriate for the primary care setting. Um, I'm going to just take a, a note aside um, and thinking about the, the reason why collaborative care can be so um, useful is that it does take that population level approach um, so that the whole goal is to screen everybody and to um, and make sure that we're identifying these lower level folks so that they can get connected with care and hopefully prevent them from moving up to the top of the pyramid. So that's again why we're screening. So I just want to go over, um, you know, what is the difference between collaborative care that can happen in a primary care setting and what can happen in a, um, a specialty uh, psychiatric uh, location? So collaborative care is all about it being in the primary care office, being really led by the PCP, that it's more focused, as we just talked about, on those mild to moderate uh, patients, um, that there's a high degree of collaboration uh, between all the team members, um, and that the type of, be of behavioral health interventions by the that BHC or behavioral health clinician um, is very different. The appointments tend to be shorter, um, and they, it's time limited. We really, again, want to be able to extend our services to everybody in the population, um, whereas if somebody's referred to uh, psychiatry services, it's really longer appointments and longer. So as I mentioned earlier, this is uh, the majority of the work of, that has studied collaborative care has been in the adult population. So what does it look like um, in, in the child population? There's one study um, that I'm going to just highlight that's called Emerald. And that looked at putting in this collaborative care model um, for depressed adolescents in a busy primary practice. And they took, again, adolescents who had a PHQ-9 of greater than 10, um, which, again, is a depression screening instrument. Um, and they um, looked at getting this emerald level intervention, which is that collaborative care that we just talked about versus their, a comparison or sort of usual care. And they looked at six month um, response and remission rates. So what they found is that in um, folks who received that emerald intervention, there was a higher rate of remission and a higher rate of response, suggesting that this emerald model does uh, effectively work uh, for patients in the primary care setting. Um, so with that um, introduction, I'm going to hand this over to Julie to talk about Oh, okay. Now you can hear me because I can hear me. <laughs> okay. Thank you, Katie. So I have to say it's a little bittersweet for me to be giving this talk because a few months ago I actually had to give up my role in collaborative care due to other administrative responsibilities. 
Um, but it's also been a nice time to really be thinking about putting things into a perspective. And it's very difficult to squeeze more than five years worth of work into a 10 minute talk. So I really have tried to focus on highlights and then during the discussion, if people want to hear more details or discuss things in more detail, we certainly can do that. So five years ago, we embarked on fully implementing the integrated care in the Dartmouth, Lebanon outpatient pediatric practice. And in the years prior to that, the adult services had been implementing the Ames collaborative care model in general medicine and in family practice. And thanks to the passion of Dr. Tansky and Dr. Loud, and due to some grant funding, we were asked to implement the model in the pediatric practice. So to review uh, this thing, yes. To review, the components include comprehensive screening in order to target who in the population needs to be um, identified and referred to the behavioral health team monitoring the responses so that we know who's getting better and needs no more uh, intervention and uh, who is not doing as well as we expect them to do. And so we need to target them more directly and look at, as Katie had mentioned, what's going on and what else do, does the team need to do to help them get better. And consultation directly to the providers and to the practice to bolster support for those who are not responding or to answer other questions that might come up. In starting the work, we were aware that working with children, adolescents, and their families was likely going to be different than working with an adult population. Did we have the right screening tools? Were the disorders that we were looking at the ones that we really needed to be looking at in a pediatric practice? And what interventions would be effective within a primary care pediatric practice setting? These are also questions that are coming up nationally. During this time, Katie and I both participated in a national learning collaborative around pediatric collaborative care that has since led to a project that the AIMS Center is now doing to implement collaborative care in pediatric settings and then actually study them. They're the center that you may remember that um, Katie described were the ones that developed this model to begin with. So they're also looking at what needs to be different in order to be successful in a pediatric practice. So how did we do? Well, overall, I think it was pretty successful. I think more patients have been able to be cared for within the primary care setting, and that reduced the number of referrals to our specialty outpatient psychiatric clinic, and I think also allowed for faster treatment for many patients. I also think that the cases who needed to be referred outside of our system got there faster and had better bridging before they were able to get treatment in those settings. In terms of specific components of the collaborative care model, our results are mixed. Some screening could easily be done in the current practice, but there were limitations. So Katie already mentioned about the uh, DART screen, and you guys all know that way better than we do, um, but it does have uh, integrated into it in the electronic medical record, the ability to screen for a lot of things, including depression, anxiety, and thanks to Dr. Chapman's work during this time with SBIRT, it also screens for substance use. The screens are validated and they are for adolescents only. They are done routinely, but only at, at that time, only at well child visits. And kudos to all of you, because apparently the data is showing that there's 95% compliance with the DART screen, so good job. However, we were not screening children, and we also didn't know if these screens were the only ones that should be used to target patients for a pediatric practice. We did discuss other options for more frequent screening, but the practice as a whole determined that we really couldn't make those changes because of the extra load it would put on support staff and on providers. Monitoring, monitoring progress was also a challenge. The culture and structures in place did not lend themselves to this also without substantial change. Additionally, the lack of a registry that is well integrated with the electronic medical record is a huge barrier to being able to use one. So we attempted to monitor as well as we could in a more naturalistic way through ordering more frequent screenings, 
partially through behavioral health clinician follow-up, which could be by phone or through in-person visits. And we also attempted, although not so successfully, to increase the frequency of provider visits. The culture of medical care in our country is to give priority to those in most acute need and with the highest severity. So it's a different model to have frequent visits with patients whose mental health needs might not be life-threatening. And of course, packed schedules are probably the biggest factor keeping providers from being able to see their patients more frequently. In terms of ensuring evidence-based treatments, this depends on the availability of well-trained clinicians. So within our system, I think we did pretty well, particularly for those patients who uh, needed or benefited from short-term interventions, which our behavioral health clinician is able to provide. For those who need to be referred outside the system due to uh, the complexities of trying to organize that, as well as the lack of well-trained providers in the community and well-trained and the lack of availability for the well-trained providers, those were uh, much more challenging. Supporting good medication management was an easier task. We had multiple avenues for consultation, education, and support, and we were working with a highly motivated and engaged provider group. However, there were definitely some growing pains. It required continued focus and reminders that the goal of the collaborative care service is to support treatment within the primary care practice by the primary care provider and team members. Built into my role was a very small amount of time for direct clinical face-to-face -face work. This is not part of the collaborative care model as usual. In order to maintain the fidelity of the model, I was very careful, some might say really strict, about determining who I would see. I only did face-to-face -face consultation with patients for whom the primary care provider was prescribing the medications and only in support of the work that the primary care team was doing. So sometimes it was for diagnostic clarification, sometimes for medication recommendations that a chart review alone was not going to um, be able to do, and sometimes because laying on the hands of the specialist is enough to allow families to then be comfortable with what the primary care provider was recommending. But there were many patients that I triaged out because they needed a more comprehensive evaluation or more specialized care. The problem for our full-time behavioral health clinician is the limitation in the ability to consult on and treat all requested cases. And this speaks to the difference, as Katie was describing, between collaborative care and co-located care. The behavioral health clinician is not there to do business as usual that you would see in an outpatient therapy practice and just doing it within primary care. It's really a different role. So as we were working largely from a provider referral model rather than the screening model that's generally considered part of collaborative care, the behavioral health clinician was being asked to help with very complicated cases that would ordinarily not be served by this model. In order for a behavioral health clinician to consult to and support these kinds of cases, more team members and a different model would be needed. So what did I learn? Oops, sorry. Um, I'm going to tell you from my perspective as the consulting psychiatrist and kind of the lead of implementing the program, but Susan Pollan is here. She's my behavioral health clinician who actually did most of the work. So perhaps during the discussion, Susan could share some of her lessons learned. And I would also appreciate it if some of the providers who are here could also chip in from their perspective what they saw as some of the successes and challenges. First, I learned what an amazing group of outpatient pediatric practitioners are at Dartmouth. You are committed to comprehensive care for patients and families. You are smart and skilled and interested and willing to keep learning and trying. You are brave. You have been willing to push your own limits of comfort in order to help the patients. And you've been very collegial. We figured things out together. The providers were patient throughout the processes and the changes. They were willing to let us try things and they expressed constant support and positive feedback. 
More recent government funding has allowed coordination with community service agencies. These are some of the programs that are currently working within the pediatric practice to support families and adolescents. The presence of these groups provides group op great opportunities to do more for more, but it also requires coordination and collaboration. There needs to be a way to share the work rather than duplicating it. Patients can get very frustrated and overwhelmed by receiving multiple phone calls from multiple providers and uh, too much contact, too little coordination among the people who are really trying to help them. So there's a high potential for mixed messages and miscommunication if there isn't good collaboration among all of these services. I learned that success requires the practice and the behavioral health team to accept and embrace the model for its benefits and also its limitations. And while collaborative care can be successful in its goals, pediatricians really want more for the practice as a whole. It's important to recognize and acknowledge that the work of collaborative care is designed to address a specific population that can be effectively treated at a primary care setting by the primary care team. It is not intended to set up for the, it is not intended or set up for the more complex patients, that top of the pyramid that Katie was referring to. Success also requires a true commitment of the practice leadership. Implementing anything new involves time, and time is something that primary care providers already do not have enough of. And if the culture shift is not fully supported by the leaders of the practice, it is too easy to just continue on in the usual ways. And finally, I learned how frustrating and uncomfortable it can be for the behavioral health team to have to stick to the, role of the roles of the model. First, it's impossible to do everything when the roles are set up to support a population-based primary care-focused initiative, but it's also very hard not to give our all when it's needed. It's difficult to become a member of a team and yet have to tell the other members of the team that we just can't help in certain situations. Second, when community resources are scarce, as they are in rural settings in particular, the load ends up falling to the primary care practice, who then in turn needs more behavioral health support than the collaborative care model can always provide. And third, collaborative care requires the active participation of the providers. Variability in skills can definitely be addressed in this model through the consultation and education that goes on, but lack of interest or willingness or commitment to trying and learning creates an insurmountable barrier to improving the mental health care for the patients of a practice. And asking providers to embrace doing one more thing is very hard. And last, I want to say that despite the sharp learning curve and the many challenges, how much fun it really was to work with Susan Pollan, my behavioral health clinician, and these inspiring GAP providers. It was really my privilege to become part of the family up in 6L. Katie will now talk about what she and the team in Manchester are doing. They are building on what we started here in Lebanon to do collaborative care in the Manchester and Bedford practices and also better defining the service and developing a model so that it can be spread to the other pediatric practices in the system, as Keith was alluding to at the beginning. Do you want to mute this now? Keith? Oh. Ready? <clears throat> so it's just, as Julie just said, I'm going to take a few minutes to talk about, um, is this on? Oh. Yeah, it's green. Is that better? Perfect. Okay. Um, so I'm going to talk about some of the work that has begun down in the Manchester Clinic. And I'm really um, excited about some of the kind of projects that are ongoing down there. We have a great work group um, that is started to meet regularly and is really thinking about some of the questions of how can we take the, that adult model, that collaborative care, and adapt it so that it looks, um, it's actually more able to meet the needs of our, our population specifically. So our team down in Manchester is tasked with a tremendous, uh, I think, sort of 
goals and opportunities. Um, and certainly some of the things that we're trying to figure out is how, how can, again, how can we adapt it to make it work for, for PEDS and for BH specifically? So some of the things that we're trying to look at is what are the differences in care processes that need to happen? Because now we don't, of course, just have a single patient. We have the patient and their mom and their dad or their dad and their dad and their grandparents and the uncles who are a lot, because we've got kids who are getting a lot more family support. Um, we also have to make sure that we're remembering that kids are developmental creatures. They are changing one day to the next, unlike adults were maybe a little bit more consistent. Um, but how do we look at illnesses across the developmental span? Um, also involving schools and what's our role uh, in uh, working in this, with the schools for these folks. We also don't know how many behavioral health clinicians we actually need. Um, I think as Julie was alluding to is that Susan here in Lebanon has done a fantastic job, um, but we probably could use, I don't know, maybe 20 of Susan. Um, but what is the right ratio that we need in order to give, in order to ensure that patients are getting the care that they need through this model? Um, and we don't yet know that that's ongoing work that's part of Dartmouth and that's ongoing nationally as well. Um, and again, the other thing that Julia was talking about is collaborative care is, is designed to serve a, a subset of the population that we have. And so when, we're, when kids fall outside of sort of that mild to moderate uh, symptomatology, how do we ensure that there's some way of getting the care that those higher level kids need? Um, and some of the other things that we're going to be investigating down in Manchester is you know, who, who are we screening and what are we screening them with? Because um, we know, you know, system-wide here at Dartmouth, we are looking at the adolescents, but we're not screening, you know, anyone under 12. And we're also not, look, we're not getting parent input on a regular basis from population level. So do we also look at some opportunities for enhancing screening in that way? Um, we also want a pediatric-specific registry so that we know what we want to be tracking about our patients over time um, that is pediatric specific. Um, we also have to be looking at what are the interventions that we want to ensure kids and families have access to. So what are some of the short-term behaviorally based interventions that can be effectively implemented in the primary care setting? And how do we integrate both the parent and the children in that? Um, and also, what's the role of medication? You know, with adults, medication is often chosen as one of the first-line interventions. In kids, we know that's a little bit different. Oftentimes, the first-line intervention is more behavioral work. So how does the medication um, And then, you know, the kind of fourth uh, part of it that we'll be looking at is, again, how are we going to be monitoring patients over time? And how do we actually assess patients. So are we seeing them just office based and doing some of the uh, patient reported outcomes? Or can we call them on the phone? Or um, is there opportunities for maybe doing some more um, online work? So these, again, are some of the questions. We've got a big task to do down in Manchester, and we're just sort of in the very beginning stages. But I'm excited, again, with our team down there, and I think that we're going to have some, um, some really uh, interesting thoughts that will be modeled. There. Um, so what we know we want to kind of things to look like so far is we want we want parents and kids to be able to come in and say we need help. And the PCP, as you guys all do, um, to be able to say we can help, but we want to make sure that the primary care providers have access to the supports that they need. So you can definitely say we have help. So these are some of the things on this uh, kind of side here that I think a lot of folks are having to address. So. Typically, we think about kind of that green box as being things that certainly the primary care provider may be able to kind of do independently. In this middle box, um, sort of for disruptive behaviors, anxiety, depression, substance issues, that's really where the PCP can pull in the behavioral health clinician to get to ensure that those kids are getting supports. And down in Manchester, um, for kind of some of these more community resources or permanent uh, needs, um, that's where we would pull in our family support stuff. So uh, just to go over kind of what that model looks like specifically. So here we have 
pediatric providers and the patient and family. And then when these issues, the anxiety, depression, substance um, are identified, that's when the behavioral health clinician can be, be pulled in. That behavioral health clinician can do things like um, emergency assessments, psychiatric evaluations, some brief interventions, psychoeducation and parenting. And the collaborative parapsychiatrist um, is able to support the primary, uh, is able to support the behavioral health clinician, but then also provide support back up to the PCP doing education or some targeted patient specific advice. Um, and then of course there's the other community or the other supports within the um, practice um, and linkage to community resources. So this is really the kind of bare bones outline um, of the collaborative care model that will be implemented down in, in Manchester. Um, and that's where we're headed. There is uh, out again, outside of the collaborative care model, there uh, we've also chosen to ensure that there's a little bit more uh, psychiatric support so that there's some opportunity as Julie was saying of doing some face-to-face -face consultation and e-consults. Um, but again, that's not quite in the model of collaborative care, but that will be part of our development. So with that, um, Julie and I are happy to um, answer questions or uh, be delighted for comments or comments. First, I want to thank both of you um, and Susan Pullen, because without the three of you, my job becomes impossible. And for those of you who don't know, Dr. Shea is uniquely set up to become our collaborative psychiatrist, because way back when she was a baby resident with us in psychiatry, she actually did a year of continuity clinic um, with our clinic. So she has a really unique perspective into what primary care docs face on a kind of daily basis. My question to you is... A, Kind of a simple one is how many patients are we talking about? We don't have a great registry. I know that, you know that. How many people have I referred into you? How much has our practice referred in Susan? What's your volume? Like if we don't know the numbers, how are we gonna get the ratios of behavioral health support correct? Exactly. <laughs> um, we haven't collected a lot of data recently. Um, but at one point, there was another group that was sort of looking from the population health group, was looking at some of the numbers. And I think it was after we'd been here about a year, maybe a year and a half. And I think there were 700, maybe, cases that had been touched by somebody at that point. Or 700 touches, so I don't know how many separate patients that would have been. I don't know if you have any... I'm just looking at my schedule today, and I think out of the 10 patients that are scheduled, eight of them are behavioral health appointments in some variety or the other. So that's all part of the yeah. work. Yeah. Patricia, Kai, Dr. Um, I, I totally agree with Kathy. This is an impossible work for us to do without you guys. And, um, and it's not just, I feel like it's a really hard number to track because it's not just consults or to the behavioral health clinicians. You guys are so responsive. You sent the staff message when you were with Hydoxia. Like it's, there's a lot of less than trackable things happening and it's just called support and the right thing to do and it's great. And I guess my comment is that I hope that we can actually make this type of collaboration happen in other specialties because it really is freeing to us as a primary care physician to be able to tell our patients, you don't need to see anybody else. I can do this what they want to hear. It's actually the right thing to do. It's what Keith has been telling us that we should, you know, kind of like be able to do more and work with the specialists. And I would say in other specialties, it's not really happening in the same way. There's a lot of, okay, well, here's some starting points, and then they probably should come and see me. And I think due to a dearth of providers in mental health, we just simply can't do it, and it's forced our hand. And I would actually say it works really well, and that our patients, I think if asked, prefer that to seeing a specialist a couple of times and so just kudos to you guys for actually maybe out of like just because you had to but you made it work and I think if it could just be shared as a model it's great so can I ask a question back sure. thank you for all of that um, this is part of why I think you guys have been so fabulous because of that attitude 
But I think a lot of people in other practices, like when I was back in Maine and trying to do more integrated work, a lot of the pediatricians feel, I can't be a cardiologist and a GI specialist and an allergist and a general preventive health person and a mental health specialist. So how do you, how do you manage all of that? I mean, you guys give really specific. There's been times where I've said, I can't, I can't do that. But I would say from 10 years ago to today, I've started Abilify. I've started Risperdal. They're medications that I would have never started without you guys telling me exactly what to do, what labs, and to have the right conversation with the family of here's the risks, here's the benefits. And so I think it's because you guys have done some like really intense hand-holding um, as a team that it has made me feel comfortable. I would say that e-consults. I would have said, no way, I can't. A, a primary care physician should not be prescribing a I think the e-consults have also to the work that Eric Schessler has done across the system. The e-consults have been super helpful, and I know it can be frustrating from the specialty standpoint because we don't ask our consult questions well enough sometimes. But when we've asked a good question, you guys have given us a good answer. So I have one that somebody did the e-consult on not too long ago, and you said, start here, cross titrate here, and then do this, and then step three, and then if you're still having problems, call me. Right, so I have this template to use over the next two months of how to titrate a medication that I wasn't quite as familiar with doing. So. And I would say some of it is a willingness on your part to go there. Because yeah. I think some people would say, I, and after that step, I can't tell you anymore because I haven't seen you. I'm not willing to take that risk. Yeah. And so I think some of it is a back and forth trust that you guys know that we'll do what you have asked us to do and that we'll try to do a good job with it. But I think there are a lot of specialty providers that might that are just like, ooh, I can't, I can't ask you to try to man, I, I can't manage that from afar because if something happens, I don't, I feel too nervous that like this isn't safe. And I think that you've shown that actually it is. I haven't, I haven't really had any problems from it. Yeah. Steve, and Patricia, you've gone out and said much of the things that I was going to say. But I think, I think what you've done um, in part of the collaborative care model and in training primary care docs and what we can do and how to elevate our game, if you help define the right boundaries and the right interfaces with specialty care. And I think thinking about those practices back in Maine and in different places, that's part of the anxiety, I think, of being a cardiologist and a gastroenterologist is those boundaries are not so clear. Like, What should I be doing here? What are the appropriate management for someone with diabetes that I should be able to do in my practice? But then what's that right interface and how do I access that? If there is a sense that I, that's ill-defined or that I won't be able to access that at, when I need to, um, there's anxiety about starting down that road. So I think that is one of the really important accomplishments of the tech collaborative care model is to think about what that interface is and where the handoff should be. Well, I am really impressed with the uh, program that has been established because uh, I believe you have established the infrastructure for true trauma, intergenerational trauma-informed care to be implemented in primary care uh, in the future. And I was excited to hear about the co-location model, which I believe, and a lot of practitioners believe, is the best way to go. And I hope we can eventually move towards that model, because uh, with my conversations with Susan, I know that one behavioral health clinician can do tasks assigned to her, which goes way beyond what she is assigned to do, is not manageable. But uh, there are institutions, actually, uh, in the country one in Montessori uh, Medical Center uh, that established co-location model with a huge behavioral health clinician system within the primary care. So as a result, uh, it is wonderful that our gap providers are so willing to take on responsibilities, etc. but they can't be behavioral health clinicians, mental health providers. Uh, having a larger behavioral health clinician program within our primary care uh, can work toward 
scarcity of mental health providers that are outpatient providers within the community and keep a lot of our patients in our uh, own system. Um, we may work on bringing some uh, leaders from Montessori Hospital to discuss how they implemented not only trauma-informed care in full in their own clinic, but also a behavioral health services network again within their primary care that it would uh, build upon what we have established already to uh, move towards a better service model at its So I, 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 I see our friends in Manchester on the screen. I, I don't know if it's going to work, if they can even speak up. Any questions from down there? Eric, I see in the room, I think. And um, he is most... He's, he seems like he's teaching something, so <laughs> he is most associated with the co-management model through the e-consult work. So if he can text in if he wants, but Alan, Dr. Rizzi, can I'd be interested in hearing uh, your thoughts as to how the interns and residents and medical students integrated into this, or were they, were their patients and were they separate from this? Um, We've heard from Pat and others here that this is somewhat complicated and it's a difficult concept sometimes to implement when you have students, and that's a major function of our department. They don't know about it. <laughs> so I think Susan can speak to some of that from um, her work with the trainees and certainly the staff. And just, Josiah, what do you guys think? You guys are our senior residents. I mean, I was going to say I think it's been a great educational experience for us. Have Susan in clinic and have the access, but I know, uh, especially in talking to residents who graduated prior to this being implemented, um, they felt some like a good degree of comfort um, going out and managing mental health issues out in their practice in the community. But I feel like compared to what we, I think, we're getting now, it's Sure, it's been challenging for Susan because <laughs> we're constantly popping in and asking her questions, but it's been very helpful for us education-wise. There's a big push from the AAP and the ACGME to integrate more comprehensive behavioral health training for pediatric residents. So on the list of things, Katie, that you and I can work on is um, really uh, bringing a much more robust <coughs> curriculum about mental health training for pediatric residents. And I don't know if it's a coincidence, but since we've been doing the collaborative care work, we've also had more requests from pediatric residents to spend some time, come and visit and shadow in our clinics. So I think it's definitely much more present in the training program as a whole. So, so Trisha, Trisha blasted open the conversation a little bit in an important way. And, I, and talking more about co-management and collaborative care in general, I think, I think one of the reasons perhaps that pediatricians feel less uh, comfortable with managing sp specialty conditions or conditions in organ systems is because of the crushing demand for behavioral health services doesn't leave them much time beyond preventative care and behavioral health is one thing. But we do know that taken as a whole, there's maybe not quite as much of a dearth of pediatric specialists as we see for behavioral health specialists, but almost every pediatric subspecialty, and those of you in the room know this, per the Board of Pediatrics predictions, are going to be very, very under-resourced because of the numbers of folks who are in fellowship training versus the number of folks who are retiring. As a whole, specialty pediatrics is probably going to be in a similar crisis with behavioral health in terms of accessing specialists. And so I think Tricia knows I've said this time and time again, the general pediatrician, and it is our heritage as a department to be strong general pediatricians who can manage a lot of specialty care need and want to step up into that void just in this way. One of the things about this is that you actually have, even if it's co-located or collaborative, someone in the room with you makes it a heck of a lot easier. That said, I'm going to pontificate a little bit, this broad behavioral, this broad mini fellowship series, which is behavioral health this year, but as you know, has been pulmonary, has been cardio, has been neurology. The very notion of that is to enhance and facilitate the co-management that, that Tricia talks about by bringing knowledge to the primary care from the specialists and to establish some common frameworks and common steps. Within behavioral health, though, we heard that one of the key components
governance for the primary care folks is to have a level of comfort with the knowledge base. So in addition to this specific mini fellowship series we're doing now, there is, for those of you who are paying attention through the New Hampshire Pediatric Society, there is a, or the New Hampshire Pediatric Improvement Partnership, there is an ECHO, an Extension for Community Health Outcomes, essentially learning collaborative being launched now by New Hampshire PIP UNH. Hopefully Julie will be a faculty member in that ECHO. But Pearl. That, Pearl will be a fellow. So that is an opportunity to monthly have a, uh, essentially a webinar phone call, much like those of you who know, in New Mexico, the ECHO model started with managing one, one gastroenterologist, basically managing all hep C throughout the state by engaging the primary care docs. We have at least a 30-year echo that, that Craig Donnelly and Nina do on Friday mornings, which is open to the community to discuss just such cases and advance your knowledge. I think it is hugely underutilized. It's actually probably twice a month. So it's once, once here, Nina? There two times here, the second and the fourth Fridays. And people can call in still, or is it just you have to be physically local? Um, probably it's good to do physically. There is, a, on the third Friday of the month, there's one that is um, by video with the seacoast. Um, and on the fourth Friday of the month, we actually have a collaborative with um, a group in China, a person in Singapore, a group in Indianapolis, which also we're doing by video, and I think probably other people could join us, some other locations as well, if they're interested in other stuff. Yes, we had... So there's the Seacoast model, and this is international. We had done a more regional video model that was undersubscribed, just as, quite frankly, the number of folks who meet with Craig and Nina on Friday mornings is pretty small. Alan, I think, continues to attend, but he isn't bringing currently active cases with him. So a little bit of a pitch of the other supports and connections that we have with psychiatry that help advance not this specific component of the model, but overall how we do integrated care. And I would pitch that on the fourth Thursday of the month at noon, we have a meeting here in Lebanon up, at, um, up in psychiatry that's really designed for um, the primary care providers to be able to come in and talk about cases. So that is also available for anyone to and, and, and discuss. Anything going on regarding the idea of embedding pediatrics into anything that's health, anything that's psychiatric, psychological cases, rather than doing it the reverse, just thinking of the dearth of kind of psych psychiatric and psychological practitioners out there? Probably more pediatricians than there are the mental health providers. So, can we reverse this kind of integration a little bit and bring maybe someone that's really interested in behavioral health into the psychiatric world and then bring um, I think that generally the idea has been that patients are much more attached to, comfortable with, and likely to seek out their medical care than they are because of all the stigma and all the other issues that come around the mental health piece. So I think that's where a lot of the focus has been. Can we get behavioral health care? Uh, in the areas where the kids are. We're doing, actually, I'm doing the school echo um, as part of that um, initiative. Um, so the answer to your question is not that I'm aware of, but back in Maine, we actually looked at that. Uh, there was an um, advanced practice nurse who had family practice, but had been a psychiatric nurse before and wanted to be the behavioral health medical practitioner a group, and in that situation, it was actually really a billing problem, um, and also, next question. yeah, <laughs> um, I think uh, there are some places, usually it's an FQHC that can afford to do this, where they're a federally qualified healthcare center, where they can put uh, clinics into schools, for example, and there they have pediatrics and mental health together in the same place, again, the idea being that the kids are there already and could work together there, but I'm not aware outside of hospital settings, I'm not aware of having um, pediatric providers in. But tied to that, I have always suggested, offered, and encouraged any pediatrician, so the trainees for sure, but even a practicing pediatrician, 
If you want to come and work with us in our clinic and actually take on a few patients and get even more comfortable with it, we're well organized to have people come in and learn um, and, and actually practice on how to do that, um, which is a little different than what you're saying, but I did want to put that in. So I think, oh. So on a small scale, a small scale, I'm going out to um, the addiction treatment center this morning to work and moms in recovery, and that's part of our integrated, co-located, multidisciplinary approach to supporting women um, in recovery, and then substance-exposed infants. And it's on a small scale, and some of the residents have come out with me, but it's really promising, I mean, that idea of co-location, collaboration in the same setting is a powerful one. Oh, I was just gonna say, I separate from kind of some of the work that Steve's done, I'm less aware of anything that's been done specifically in the pediatric setting in regards to that question. But there are increasing studies that have looked at for adults with severe and persistent mental illness. So these are the folks who are on atypical antipsychotics, have a reduced you know, lifespan, they're at high risk for diabetes, um, heart disease, et cetera, that they have embedded primary care into those particular settings. Um, and I think some of the initial data shows that it works well because oftentimes those individuals are the ones that are actually most connected to their mental health providers and less connected to their primary care docs. So that has been helpful in that setting. But again, not sure yet that there's been a lot of downstream. Full house for pastime. That was a great session. Thank you.